This program is intended for informational and educational purposes only. All views and opinions expressed are the views and opinions of the individuals and sponsors presenting them, and not the LTB network. Enjoy the show. Well, hello everybody. Welcome to the Mad Money Machine. My name is Paul Boyer. This is episode 15 for April 8th, 2014. Coming up on this episode, we'll have a report from our Northern Virginia meetup, where we talked about Bitcoin 2.0 and lots more fun stuff here on the Mad Money Machine. Broadcasting from the Bitcoin bunker, six blocks below. Brandishing the blockchain to fight good versus evil. This is Bitcoin versus the man. This is the battle of the century. This is the Mad Money Machine. Gavin Andreessen has stepped down from his post as lead developer at the Bitcoin Foundation. I'll tell you more about that. We'll have an altcoin of the week. We'll have the market minute. We will talk about Satoshi's paper, section seven, and we'll spin the guru roulette wheel. After today, April 8th, Microsoft will no longer provide security updates or technical support for Windows XP, the most stubbornly successful operating system in Microsoft history. Article by Eric Knorr at Infoworld.com. He asks, how ancient is XP? Which, if you believe the latest net market share numbers, still runs on more than a quarter of PCs worldwide. Well, when XP was released, the world was still in shock from 9-11, and the war in Afghanistan had just begun. Steve Jobs had released the first iPod two days before October 25th, 2001, the official XP rollout date. XP immediately eclipsed the weirdly unusable Windows Me, wrapping Windows 2000's rock-solid NT Core into a pretty UI and new multimedia features. It felt solid, it looked good. Most people were happy with Windows 98 though, so XP took a while to take hold. But when it did, it hung on like a raptor. The uh, article in InfoWorld by Eric Knorr continues, The Vista Faceplant. When Windows XP was without a success for, successor for five years, the longest gap ever between Windows versions. Windows Vista disaster that followed is now the stuff of legend. Throughout its ignominious existence, Vista never cracked a 20% market share. Why do we care so much about Windows XP? Well, because, according to an article out at Bitcoin Magazine, a lot of automated teller machines run Windows XP still. The article says, hold on to your Bitcoins, why April 8th, 2014 might be a defining moment in Bitcoin history. Mark Rees wrote this article out at March 23rd. He said, mark your calendars for April 8th. It's been a target day of dread for thousands of companies' IT departments, counting down to the days before they cross the finish line. There are currently armies of IT folks throughout the world in a race to upgrade Microsoft Windows XP operating systems to modern versions of Windows before Microsoft officially pulls the plug. Windows XP is now a 13-year-old operating system 
and it was arguably Microsoft's most popular and longest-lasting trusted version of Windows they've published. The article goes on to say that April 8th is the last date Microsoft will publish the latest round of security fixes for Windows XP, known in the IT departments as the monthly Patch Tuesday. The first reported vulnerability after that date means the computer is unsecured and no longer compliant with the laws established by the PCI organization that grants authority to use the credit card payment networks. As such, they may be barred from being allowed on the credit card payment network. This includes ATM machines, which the organization estimates to be over 420,000 in the U.S. alone, and 95% of them are estimated to be running various versions of Windows XP underneath. This could spell the end for many merchants and ATM machines throughout the world that rely on credit cards or the payment networks under the control of the PCI organization. This message has been communicated regularly by the PCI Security Council, but has been largely ignored by the retail industry until the last few months. Visa Credit Card has been updating its merchant banks on the various security mandates since 2007. Their concluding paragraph says, With no legal ability to process credit card transactions, businesses that rely on credit cards to run their operations could be in serious jeopardy. The backup plan has traditionally been cash or written checks for the few that continue to, to accept them. Many merchants have been in a state of denial about the Windows XP and PCI compliancy predicament. Without a large IT organization to advise them, smaller companies may find this deadline comes as an unwelcome surprise. It may be a good time to hold on to your bitcoins or better yet, stock up. Well, I'm old enough to remember the Y2K scare as we counted down the clocks from 1999 to the year 2000, and all the trauma that was going to occur in computers throughout the world that couldn't handle the year change, supposedly. Well, we'll see whether the ATMs can handle the old operating system or not. And maybe it's a good time for them to consider switching to Linux. Last Tuesday, April Fool's Day, I had the privilege of going to the Northern Virginia Bitcoin meetup. Brian Hoffman uh, leading the uh, events there. He gave a talk, Bitcoin 2.0, Next Generation Platforms. And basically what he went over was uh, some of the Bitcoin 2.0 uh, platforms that are emerging. And I'll list them. He uh, first went over MasterCoin, then Colored Coins, then NXT. He talked about BitShares, Counterparty, Open Transactions, Ripple, and closed it out with Ethereum. We had about 30 people show up. That's our largest uh, gathering yet of a Northern Virginia meetup. Now, the D.C. Bitcoin meetup has had larger events, though. It's just farther away. But it was really uh, good to see everybody out there. And look forward to the next one in May. If you are interested in seeing the PowerPoint slides that Brian put together for this, I'll have a, a link to them in the show notes. It's from a Dropbox file. It is a PowerPoint presentation. You should be able to view it in Google Viewer if you need to. But again, I'll have a link. You can go to madmoneymachine.com and look in episode 15 show notes for the link to the Bitcoin 2.0 overview. Time now for Satoshi's Corner. Satoshi no corner. 
This week we're in Section 7 of Satoshi's paper, Bitcoin, a Peer-to-Peer Electronic Cash System. We've basically built the foundation for Bitcoin. Talked about how transactions happen and how the blockchain happens with a timestamp server, the proof of work, the network itself. Last week we talked about incentive and why miners are incentivized to run hashes to perform the proof of work that makes the changing the blockchain impossible. Well, this week, Satoshi gets on to something a little more practical. Section 7, Reclaiming Disk Space. Now, it's an interesting side note here that um, Leah McGrath of Newsweek, who wrote the famous article uh, claiming that Dorian Nakamoto was Satoshi Nakamoto, she referred to this section of the paper uh, saying that Satoshi must be an old guy because only old people would be interested in reclaiming hard disk space. Well, that's what the section is about. Section 7, Reclaiming Disk Space. It's only two paragraphs long. It actually has two figures in it. It's the first time we come across figures in Satoshi's paper. And I'm reading now. It says, Once the latest transaction in a coin is buried under enough blocks, the spent transactions before it can be discarded to save disk space. To facilitate this without breaking the block's hash, transactions are hashed in a Merkle tree, and here he references footnotes 7, 2, and 5, with only the root included in the block's hash. Old blocks can then be compacted by stubbing, stubbing off branches of the tree. The interior hashes do not need to be stored. And then we have the two figures. The first figure is showing the... Uh, tree with the transactions all in place, the transactions hashed into a Merkle tree. And then the figure to the right of it shows um, a smaller set of boxes after pruning transactions 0 through 2 from the block. The uh, section continues with the last paragraph. A block header with no transactions would be about 80 bytes. If we suppose blocks are generated every 10 minutes, then 80 bytes times six of these per hour, times 24 hours per day, times 365 days a year, would equal about 4.2 megabytes per year. With computer systems typically selling with 2 gigabytes of RAM as of 2008, and Moore's Law predicting current growth of 1.2 gigabytes per year, storage would not be a problem even if the block headers must be kept in memory. And footnotes 7, 2, and 5... Number seven there refers to the paper by Merkel called Protocols for Public Key Cryptosystems from 1980. Footnote two we've mentioned before, it's a design of a secure time stamping service with minimal trust requirements. And then number five uh, from Haber and Stornetta, um, Stornetta, Secure Names for Bitstrings, 1997. And if we look out on blockchain.info, <clears throat> go into the charts section and look for blockchain size, we see that as of today, the current blockchain size is almost 16,000 megabytes or 16 gigabytes. That's quite a bit more than 4.2 megabytes per year. Uh, 4.2 megabytes per year would get us to about 20 megabytes per year. So the difference between the 20 megabytes, or excuse me, 20 megabytes per the five years, uh, the difference between the 20 megabytes and the 16,000 megabytes is that we're not storing in this uh, case, or blockchain info is not showing 
the pruned blockchain. They're showing the tool, total and full blockchain with all the transactions included, even the ones that are spent. Well, that's seven sections down, five to go in Satoshi's Breakthrough Paper. Let's play a round of the world's favorite game, Guru Roulette. I've replaced the numbers on a roulette wheel with the names of Bitcoin gurus. I'll spin the wheel and roll the marble, and for the selected guru, give it a little background on their Bitcoin philosophy. So here we go. And the winner this time on Mad Machine episode 15 for Tuesday, April 8th is David Andalfato. David Andalfato, born approximately early 60s, based upon his uh, graduating with a BBA from Simon Fraser University in 1985, is the vice president of the Federal Reserve Bank of St. Louis. And Business Insider released an article recently that says St. Louis Fed Vice President says Bitcoin could be a good threat to central banks. In the article, they say last week, St. Louis Fed Vice President and Director of Research David Andalfato released a presentation on Bitcoin, becoming one of the most prominent central bank officials to study the cryptocurrency. We caught up with Andalfato to ask him about why he put his this PowerPoint deck together, where he thinks Bitcoin is going, and whether he personally has anything invested in it. They ask, what was the genesis for this presentation? His answer, its genesis was a blog post I'd started addressing arguments that gold bugs frequently put forth that gold is superior money. Of course, Bitcoin was in the news. I read about the algorithm that fixes the supply of Bitcoins, at least at some limit. It struck me that despite their tremendous disparity in physical properties, they share the quality that they have a relatively fixed supply, which is why Bitcoin and gold make lousy money. I blogged some more on Bitcoin, and I brought to bear conventional theories of money and whether or not, just because it was a virtual currency, whether it was good or bad. And then I was asked whether I'd be interested in presenting a talk on Bitcoin. They ask, how have your opinions on Bitcoin evolved since that first post? His answer, early on, I thought this was kind of silly. And I kind of questioned the role of the miners, these miners who are mining Bitcoin. And it led to the analogy of people mining for gold. I recall reading a blog post by Paul Krugman, who criticized Bitcoin. He was saying exactly what I was thinking that this intensive effort to mine for gold. We don't need more physical commodities. All that has to happen is the price level has to adjust. Economic theory says that kind of mining is inefficient. I shared in that opinion, but I continued to read about it and it struck me that the analogy was incorrect. That in fact, what these miners were was mislabeled. They were performing a communal service, a record keeping service, which is critical to any money system. Mining was a red herring. It's just one way to reward record keepers for their service, and that protocol could function even with constant supply. What were the main things you wanted readers to come away with from your presentation? I was trying to describe how things function today. When you think about Bitcoin as a potential rival to the US dollar, it might have some trouble competing because despite the fact that a computer algorithm governs its supply, like nature determines the supply of gold, that benefit of a theoretically stabilized price level is not necessarily something you want when there's demand volatility. So takeaway number one is that Bitcoin suffers from the same defect as gold, 
the standard volatility was very much like gold. One thing that people have not thought too much in this world of competing cryptocurrencies is that we've got a lot of experience in history of multiple competing currencies and there's a nominal exchange rate problem. Economic theory says there's nothing fundamental to pin down the exchange rate between two intrinsically useless objects. <laughs> if history is any guide, we're going to see multiple currencies circulating with extreme exchange rate volatility. So I asked, how do we think things are going to work out? Do we think merchants are going to accept several different virtual currencies? The relative prices remain stable? Really? What makes you think that? History shows these things are going to fluctuate like crazy. So what does this mean? I just don't see Bitcoin replacing the US dollar. The traditional way of controlling for exchange rate risk is to impose fixed exchange rates. The $5 bill trades at a 5 to 1 ratio to the $1 because we say so. But that goes counter to the whole spirit of these cryptocurrencies. The US dollar has already passed the market test. Some people res responded to me saying, yeah, because it's a monopoly. But there are several competing currencies out there in the world. The US dollar is still the go-to currency, but there's nothing domestically that prevents us from getting paid in pesos. Americans do have an opportunity to get paid in any currency they want. But because the Fed has been managing the supply of dollars, which hasn't always been perfect, these bugs have been patched, which the Bitcoin protocol is still working through. Inflation of the dollar has been low and stable for the past 30 years. Most people are happy. And they ask, you said Bitcoin could pose a threat to central banks. What did you mean? I do think its existence as a threat is very good. It will discipline the Fed and other central banks to continue to run responsible policies. If they don't, people could switch to something else. The idea of currency competition, many countries impose currency controls. In Albania, you would suffer severe consequences if you were caught with US do dollars in your pocket. The purpose of currency controls is to stimulate demand for domestic currency because the central bank and the central government want to exploit the people by inflating excessively. So the threat of currency competition, if a central bank, a government, knew people could stop using domestic currency and flock to an alternative, that would force the government to behave more responsibly. In the past, because of paper notes, a ban on foreign currencies was much easier. But now everyone's got a cell phone, a PC. How do you enforce those currency controls? There's no central authority. People are just trading these things using their telephones. So a government would have to take draconian measures to prevent that from happening. So that's not going to happen in the US. But to the extent there are other technologies looming out there, that threat might discipline central banks. They ask, what about Bitcoin's underlying technology? He says, I made a distinction between Bitcoin and Ripple. Bitcoin lives on the idea as a currency provider, but there are other protocols that employ the same cryptology that cryptocurrencies employ to concentrate on the payment side. Bitcoin does two things. It creates and manages a money supply and works as a payment processor. Ripple is currency agnostic. It's currently happy to let the US Fed manage the US dollar, with Ripple, you'll be able to send money across the globe with Federal Reserve-backed money. I'm not entirely sure what units mobile, mobile banking service M-Pesa uses, but these people are quite sophisticated. So what's to stop them from downloading Ripple or Bitcoin and start using them? They seem very receptive to this kind of thing, especially in Africa and the undeveloped world. That's where you see excessive inflation. 
I don't see the same demand in the U.S., despite the criticisms of the Fed and the U.S. dollar. They ask, do you own any Bitcoin? Should people be buying it? He says, no, it's highly speculative. I don't think the average person wants to get in there. If you want to put $10 into experiment, that'd be fine, but I would not want to put in my life savings. It's usually volatile. You could get lucky, but you'd have to be careful. Let's see how it evolves. Well, I'll have a link to his PowerPoint presentation in the show notes. They are at stlouisfed.org. And it's actually a pretty good overview of Bitcoin and some of the ideas surrounding it. Well, congratulations, David Andofado. You're the guru on Madman Machine, episode 15. Let's check in now on the wisdom of mainstream media with our good buddy Shepard Smith on Fox with his control center of Twitter readers. He interviews Heather Schlegel, futurist and uh, developer of a forthcoming TV series, The Future of Money, on what she thinks the future of money really is. Notice there's a satellite delay in the interview. This morning on the future of money, or really no money as we know it, not anymore. Bank of America closed. Citibank closed. Stop cheering. When you go to the store, you don't pay. There is no cashier. You just walk out because the store knows you somehow, either by facial recognition or something you wear on your belt or whatever. And money is not dollars or British pound sterling or whatever. It's just digits. It's like ones and zeros. Let's bring in Heather Schlegel. She is a futurist who's helped develop Internet products on Silicon Valley and has more than 50 product launches to her name. I read the article in The Times this morning and I was like, hmm. No more banks, no more money to carry around. This real? Hi, Shepard. Um, thanks. Yeah, it could be real. Um, it's the kind of vision of the direction that we're going right now. Um, is money real today? I might ask the question to Very you. Very good question. Because so many of you, you, you so equate it to social media changing our communications. Like, if I were to back it up 20 years, you know, when I'm sitting in a local newsroom in Fort Myers, and you tell me that in 20 years we're going to be communicating on this thing called Facebook and we're going to be tweeting each other, I never would have believed that we would change our communication. And you're saying that the same thing will, will very possibly happen with our money, right? It's, it's certainly a possibility. Um, the scenario that you kind of outlined that was outlined in the article is this idea of mashing up the trend of wearable computers, which right now are being used for tracking a lot of our medical and our body uh, metrics. But there's really no reason why our wallets cannot be also connected to it or we can't have some kind of financial artificial intelligence that already knows what our preferences are, what we want to do, what currencies we want to pay in, what our rewards are at certain uh, stores or um, uh, service providers. So why should we even like have to bother with wearing a wallet or carrying that around when we can maybe have it as a bracelet or a ring or a watch or like you said, a belt? And think of it, it isn't there already, it's not just Bitcoin here, your American Airlines frequent flyer miles, aren't they money? You can use them to buy I things, you can exchange them for, for plane trips or hotel rooms, or you can exchange them for cash. We already have this. That's right. On a regular basis, anytime I can, um, when I'm buying something on Amazon, I will use my American Express rewards points. I mean, to think that I can buy books or a new microphone or a reverse osmosis water system with my American Express rewards points, I mean, how, how can you not say that that's not a currency? So the, so the question is, add 25 years 
do we even have to have a currency? And if we do have to have one, why do we have to have one? Well, I think what we're seeing happening right now with currencies and Bitcoin as a reflection of this is that we want our currencies to communicate more information than just the tra financial transaction. In the case of Bitcoin and some of these future currencies, we're going to have our personal values embedded in the DNA of the currency. People who use Bitcoin have a certain set of beliefs. And by using Bitcoin, you communicate that you share those beliefs with that person. In the future, we're going to have other currencies that have different beliefs. Yeah. And so one example is um, if I have like a certain types of belief, I believe in um, local currencies or local communities and, sure. and the local businesses. Maybe there's a, a local uh, community currencies, which those exist today. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I'm going to a local business and I'm going to say, hey, I want to pay for this in the community currency because by paying for this, I show that I'm part of this currency. Whereas if I'm like traveling in Europe and I don't have that local uh, currency, I can't say that I'm part of that community and communicate that. Yeah, all right, Ms. Schlegel, so I, I think love in it. the future, Go ahead. sorry, so I didn't future, mean to cut you off. We have a weird a, satellite delay oh, and I no, can't help it, but I'm out of time. Oh, yeah. So, so think of this. Okay. Th Schlegel, thank you, thank you, thank you. So think of this. That was our question of the day. You could also set your preferences with this non-existent currency. Tell it, for instance, I don't want to be buying chocolate because chocolate will make me fat. Rob, you have them, right? Who has them? Chris has them. So you've got, we've gotten tweets from you. What are they saying? Yeah, so Shep, uh, this person says, new money is like the U.S. switching to the metric. It's not going to happen. We still use the penny. We are stubborn. That we didn't switch to the metric is criminal. Yeah. Go on. Uh, Dale says, do you really want a world with no viable currency, with identity theft and hackers? I do not want this do, But do I want no more fees from Visa? Do I want no more rich fat cat bankers? That's skimming off the top. That's a good point. I don't know. Do I? Uh, Wayne says, I think we are going to have a chip implanted in us and we're going to be scanned. This is where the future is taking us. Wayne found the chip. You're not supposed to find it, Wayne. Well, you can read more about the future predictions of Heather Schlegel out at Heather Vescent. Dot com. You're listening to Paul Boyer's Mad Money Machine. Well, I thought I'd mix things up just a little bit right now and play a song I've been listening to on heavy rotation from Thousand Foot Crutch. It's Let the Sparks Fly. Let the Sparks Fly.
I can see that song being used as a soundtrack for some new superhero movie. Well, if you're interested in a thousand foot crutch, crutch with a K, and you're going to be in Russia April 27th or 28th, they're going to be in the Moscow Arena on April 27th, and in St. Petersburg on April 28th. And in May, they'll begin a U.S. tour starting in North Carolina, then Iowa, Ohio, Oklahoma. You can check all their tour dates out, thousandfootcrutch.com. And if you live in the D.C. Richmond area, come with me to King's Dominion on June 28th. They're going to be performing there. Your ticket buys you admission to the park as well as admission to their concert. Time now for the Madman Machine Altcoin of the Week. Well, according to CoinMarketCap.com, the number nine coin this week is what we're going to be focusing on. It has a market cap of $4.5 million. Current price per coin, 2.9 cents. There's a total supply of 160 million of them. Has quite a large 24-hour volume. This coin claims to be 20 times faster than Bitcoin, one of the fastest transactions in digital currency, perfect for real-world commerce and trade. What coin is it? Well, let's listen to their promotional video. Hello there, and welcome to ZetaCoin. ZetaCoin is an ultra-fast digital currency that can be traded with cash and stored in a digital wallet on a smartphone or PC. ZetaCoin requires no central bank and is completely peer-to-peer. The coin is decentralized, fast, and immune to pesky exchange rates. 
your security and anonymity are protected and a bank account is not needed to send or receive. In a market cluttered with clone coins that make choosing hard, Zetacoin is backed by a strong community that is stable and expanding every day and has many surprises in store for 2014. And I guess the biggest surprise is that's where the video ends. <laughs> well, Zetacoin is the hot coin now, I guess. Congratulations, Zetacoin. You're the Madman Machine altcoin of the week. Let's take a minute to look at the market for millibits. Well, looking at the charts at bitcoinity.org. For the last seven days, the high in millibits was 51 cents. The low was 41 cents. Currently, we're at about middle of that range, 45 cents per millibit. We had a um, large increase of volume on April Fool's Day as the price went down to that 41 cent mark, but then leveled off the past four days at around the 45 cents. The total number of millibits in circulation is 12.61 billion. That's a market cap of $5.69 billion. Reward per block is $11,276. And I'm showing a current hash rate of 45 million gigahashes per second. That's your Mad Bun Machine Market Minute. In other Bitcoin news, Bitcoin Foundation lead developer Gavin Andreessen is stepping down from that post. Ah, but he's continuing to keep his role of chief scientist for the foundation. He wrote a post uh, on April 7th, says, A few years ago, I created a Google Scholar alert for Bitcoin, and I was happy if I got one alert per month. Today, I find it harder and harder to keep up with all the great computer science or economics papers related to Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies. In just the last week, Mr. Google told me about 30 new papers I might be interested in reading. Over the last 18 months, I've filled two roles. Lead developer for Bitcoin Core, that's the reference implementation, and chief scientist for the foundation. Thanks to, to the support of all the members of the foundation, I'm pleased to be able to focus more on protocol level cross-implementation issues and less on issues specific to the Bitcoin Core software. Vladimir Vanderlaan has been paid to work on Bitcoin Core full-time for several months now. Again, thanks to all of you Foundation members for stepping up and helping to fund Core Development, and has been doing a fantastic job. He's agreed to take over for me as the Bitcoin Core Maintainer. Vladimir first got involved with the Bitcoin project by re-implementing and vastly improving the Bitcoin Core user interface. He lives and works in the Netherlands, and I'm looking forward to meeting him in person for the very first time at Bitcoin 2014 in Amsterdam. Gavin continues, he says, To be clear, I'm not going to disappear. I'll still be writing and reviewing code and offering my opinions on technical matters and project priorities. I enjoy coding, and I think I'll be most effective as chief scientist if I don't lose touch with engineering reality and make the mistake of building huge, beautiful, theoretical castles that exist only as white papers. I'll spend a little less time writing Bitcoin Core release announcements and a little more time catching up on the latest Bitcoin wizards thinking on how best to implement transaction history pruning. Well, congratulations, Gavin Andreessen and the Bitcoin Foundation. And also, Vladimir Vanderlaan. And Vladimir is spelled with a W, so it might be Vladimir, but I'm not sure. Well, that sound means it must be time for the Madman Machine Millibit Merchant of the Week. 
And this week, it's Hotel of the Arts in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Hotel of the Arts Days Inn and Suites of Milwaukee, Wisconsin is now accepting Bitcoin for any room reservations or hotel services. The Hotel of the Arts is believed to be the only hotel in Wisconsin and the entire Midwest to directly accept Bitcoin. The use of Bitcoin, the widely popular cryptocurrency, is growing worldwide. The Hotel of the Arts is a trend-setting boutique hotel based in the heart of Milwaukee that believes in the power, security, and benefit that Bitcoin provides users. Patrick Prabhu, general manager of the hotel, says, Since its inception, the Hotel of the Arts has been innovative and highly customer-focused. From our free downtown shuttle to our boutique and welcoming decor, the Hotel of the Arts strives to offer Milwaukee something new, affordable, and convenient. Accepting Bitcoin was a no-brainer. We want to make the purchasing process easy and quick for all customers. Some patrons prefer to use Bitcoin, and we're happy to offer them this convenience. This secure platform is revolutionary, and we personally believe in its future and hope to play a part in its success. For the Hotel of the Arts and its patrons, Bitcoin offers multiple benefits. Mobile online payments makes no swiping or PIN number necessary. Secure payments are instantly verified through online portal. Zero or no transaction fees for the establishment and patrons. And identity protection is important, and Bitcoin assures that guests' personal information cannot be compromised. Congratulations, Hotel of the Arts. You're the Madman Machine Millibit Merchant of the Week. Naval Ravikant is the CEO and co-founder of AngelList. He uh, previously co-founded ePinions, which went public as part of Shopping.com and Vast.com. He's an active angel investor, and he's invested in dozens of companies, including Twitter, Uber, Uber, Yammer, Stack Overflow, and Wanalo. He writes a blog called StartupBoy.com, and today's entry is called The Fifth Protocol. He has a quote from Snow Crash, which says, Wait a minute, make up your mind. This snow crash thing, is it a virus, a drug, or a religion? Juanita shrugs. What's the difference? Naval writes, Cryptocurrencies will create a fifth protocol layer empowering the next generation of the Internet. Humans don't need math-based cryptocurrencies when dealing with with other humans. We walk slowly, talk slowly, and buy things. Credit cards, cash, wires, checks. The world seems fine. Machines, on the other hand are far chattier and quicker to exchange information. The four layers of the Internet Protocol suite are constantly communicating. The link layer puts packets on a wire. The Internet layer routes them across networks. The transport layer persists communications across a given conversation. And the application layer delivers entire documents and applications. This chatty, anonymous network treats resources as too cheap to meter. It's a giant grid that transfers data, but doesn't transfer value. DDoS attacks, email spam, and flooded VPNs result. Names and identities are controlled by overlords, ICANN, DNS servers, Facebook, Twitter, and certificate authorities. Where's the protocol layer for exchanging value, not just data? Where's the distributed, anonymous, permissionless system for chatty machines to allocate their scarce resources? Where's the virtual money to create this virtual economy? Well, cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin are already trustless. Any machine can accept it from any other securely. They are nearly free. They're global. No central bank required. And any machine can speak the language. And they're one or two steps from being quick, anonymous, and capable of authentication. Suppose we had a quick coin, which cleared transactions nearly instantly. 
anonymously, and for infinitesimal mining fees. It could use the Bitcoin blockchain for security or for easy trading in and out. SMTP could demand QuickCoin to weed out spam. Routers would exchange QuickCoin to shut down DDoS attacks. Tor gateways would demand QuickCoin to anonymously route traffic. Machines would bypass centralized DNS and OAuth servers using coins to establish ownership. Why stop at one coin? Let's posit a few dozen new app coins. Using application-specific coins rewards the open-source developers with a pre-mined quantity. A Tor coin can be paid to its developers and gateways and by Tor users, achieving consensus via proof of bandwidth. We can allocate any scarce network resource this way, that is, box coin for storage, cash coin for caching, etc. Let's move on to other networks. Can a completely distributed grid of small generators trade power with each other using a decentralized and trustless cryptocurrency? Can a traffic jam of self-driving cars clear itself as the computerized vehicles bid for the right-of-way? Can a mass of people crossing a street take priority over a single car waiting at the traffic light as their phones vote trustlessly and reliably for their presence? Can we effectively route networks of assets like water and power and liabilities like pollutants and sewage across a distributed grid? Can we trade stocks and financial assets with no brokers, custodians, or agents? Cryptocurrencies are electronic cash and as such will be used by electronic agents to exchange value, verify contracts, and track identity and reputation. All of a sudden, the computing resources spent by the Bitcoin miners doesn't seem wasted. It seems efficient, given that it can be used for congestion control and routing of other network resources. Cryptocurrencies are an emerging property of the Internet, almost a fifth protocol in the Internet suite. If Satoshi Nakamoto didn't exist, it would still be necessary to invent them. Someday, they will be used by the machines in our network and on our desk, in our garage, and in our pocket to exchange value and achieve consensus at blinding speeds, anonymously and at minimal cost. When that day arrives, large distributed networks that we rely upon will change. Starting with the Internet, they will become decentralized market economies, far more intelligent than they are today. Just as human brains co-evolved with our ability to trade and exchange goods with people who weren't related to us, so the network will become more intelligent as it learns to trade currency and contracts with unrelated nodes. Eventually, there will be no functioning Internet or Internet of Things at the protocol layer without deep cryptocurrency integration. Turning off this fifth protocol will be impossible. Cryptocurrencies will also remain mediums of exchange and stores of value. Nation-states that are used to imposing capital controls will face a quandary, ban cryptocurrencies and live in the technology dustbin, enable them, and this virus, this religion, this protocol will enable the free flow of money and language along with packets around the globe. Well, you can see this article at startupboy.com and all the comments that follow the article. You're listening to Paul Boyer's Mad Money Machine. I want to thank you for listening to the Mad Money Machine. This is Paul Boyer saying it takes money to make money, and it takes millibits to make a Mad Money Machine. I'll see you next Tuesday, 2 p.m., KCAA Radio, 1050 a.m., beautiful Southern California, and everywhere in the world on the Internet. In the meantime, buy some Bitcoin, spend some Bitcoin, donate some Bitcoin, and then replenish your Bitcoin. Also, if you have anything you like about this show, go out to Twitter and include at Mad Money Machine, 
in the 140 character limit. I'm going to close the show now with a fantastic song called Oceans from Hillsong. Hope you enjoy it. And if you're not driving, just close your eyes and listen deeply. You call me out upon the waters, the great unknown, where feet may fail. And there I find you in the mystery, in oceans deep, my faith will stand. we
Isn't that a great song? I first heard that on Pandora and just loved it. Want to listen to it all the time. Well, again, I thank you for listening to The Mad Money Machine. I encourage you to go out to letstalkbitcoin.com and listen to all the other great shows out there about Bitcoin. Ed and Ethan's Bitcoin Report, Bitcoins and Gravy, Sex and Science Hour, Sovereign BTC, and of course the flagship show, Let's Talk Bitcoin itself. I will see you again next Tuesday on the Mad Money Machine. We'll have episode 16 by then, and maybe we'll come up with some fun stuff next time around.